Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. I've never been this nervous in my life. Greetings from Longtime No See the Podcast. Every week we'll be inviting two blindfolded comedians to answer a series of questions about their careers, lives, and opinions. Now, let's remove those blindfolds and start the show. Hi! <laughs> what would your opening line with your celebrity crush be? Loved you in Harry Potter. <laughs> Worst date you've been on. A man bit my neck mole off once. You did what? A man bit my neck mole off. Oh my god, Jack almost fell off his chair. <laughs> be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast. Hey, everybody, it's The Spark Parade, a show where I talk to amazing people about the art and culture that's shaped their lives. I'm Adam Unz. Thanks, as always, for joining me. Coming up later on in the episode, you get the extreme pleasure of hearing my conversation with Candace Hoyes, who is a singer, songwriter, recording artist, and master of a million genres. Seriously, from opera to jazz to soul, she's got you covered. Candace and I had a wide-ranging chat that centered on the legendary and incomparable Minnie Ripperton, but we dip into the work of other legendary artists, too. We're talking Stevie Wonder. We're talking Tina Turner. We're talking Beyonce. Heavy hitters, folks. It's an incredible conversation, and I'm very excited for you to listen to it. But first, I want to talk a little bit about going behind the scenes. Candace and I talk a bit about seeing rehearsal footage for some of the most incredible live performances in history, including Tina Turner rehearsing the same bits of choreography over and over again in an effort to perfect them. When you see the hard work and determination and sweat and long nights that go into perfecting a vocal phrase or a bit of choreography or any other element of a live performance, the care and attention to detail can be mind-blowing, especially for artists at the top of their industries. And when you consider that that's just a tiny piece and a puzzle that consists of dozens and dozens of other pieces, it's kind of difficult to comprehend the amount of energy it takes to complete that project and make it look flawless for an audience. And then there's the added complication of the artist's preferred working method and personal style. For actors, we can subscribe to any number of methods and schools of thought when it comes to the rehearsal process and developing character. Some people need to live as their character and never break from it for the whole project. Some people need to get in touch with the emotional history of the text by drawing on experiences in their own life. And then there are other people, like me, who are just playing pretend, and it doesn't really get much deeper than that. Sorry to any actors or directors who are listening who might be offended by that. A lot of actors are quite religious in their adherence to their process, and hearing from people who don't really have one is like a devout Catholic hearing from an atheist. Anyway, sorry, digression. The point is, the journey to getting to the final, polished, ready-for-public-consumption artwork is not uniform. Every artist has different needs when it comes to the development of their work, and two people can deliver similar results using radically different methods, but their shared goal is developing work that moves their intended audience. The artistic development process is so personal and so unique to each individual, and it's fascinating to me to see the methods used in creating my favorite artworks, but it's really the finished product that matters to me. The development process can be as boring or wild as it needs to be, I don't care. As long as the production method results in work that I love, I'm good. There. Wasn't that cute? It was, wasn't it? And now, 
It's time for the main course. Here comes my chat with Candace Hoyes about Mini Ripperton. So, Mini Ripperton, do you remember specifically being introduced to her? I mean, I'm assuming she's kind of been a presence in, has, has been in the world your whole life. But do you have specific memories of like finding out about her for the first time? I would say the first song that I heard is her most famous song, which is a song called Loving You. So I'm sure I just heard it, you know, my parents' radio in the car as a child. Yeah. Like long before I thought of myself as a singer. Yeah, yeah. And is there anything specific about her voice or the music that resonated with you that attracted you to her? I think that just the pure quality of her voice is very sensitive and beautiful. And I've always loved the tone of her voice. I just have always found it very relatable. And even um, besides the other things about it that are unique, I think it's just a beautiful, really extraordinary human tone. And then I think as you get more mature you learn to appreciate other layers of of it yeah and that song in particular is so ubiquitous it's like inescapable um not just her signature song but this enormous cultural force it's like so ingrained in i'd say everyone's minds as this remarkable thing but outside of just hearing her songs on the radio, do you was there an entry point where you became more in, involved in her music and started started exploring the stuff that wasn't beyond the singles? Well, I love I love all of her music. Uh, I started listening as kids do. You know, you get to choose your own music, and I was listening to all kinds of stuff that was on the radio, and then started digging through my parents' vinyls. And there was Perfect Angel, which is like her most famous records, Minnie Ripperton's most famous record. And I would listen to that. And I, I think as I realized that I was a singer myself, I gravitated towards her because I also have this really high voice, this high extension to my voice. And I just always found her her singing so natural and beautiful. And so I, I started to sort of play it to myself and then discovered like the more unusual albums, like Come to My Garden, which is the album that came before that, that was a lot less commercially known. And at that time, I was also studying piano as a child. So I, I started really appreciating the instrumentation of it, which sounded so different from the music of the 2000s that, you know, it's just like a totally different musical landscape. So that was really fascinating to me too, not just the voice, but like the whole environment and universe that her voice lived in that was created by that sort of set of artists around her, the Wonderland sound of Stevie Wonder and Charles Stepney, who was a frequent writer and collaborator with her. So it was like a whole movement of 70s sound that really kind of fascinated me. And I think that is striking that, you know, for someone who had such a short life and because of that had a relatively short career, the number of incredible people who she worked with, the amount of connections there are between her and the broader music industry, mm -hmm. um, it, it's really astonishing. And I think that's a testament to the quality of her voice and her artistry that it's like this singular talent that instantly 
all of these people were so attracted to and wanted to collaborate with her. Yeah, really, really incredible, really amazing. Well, I think like it's the story that she, her life experience would be a lot more relatable. It's It wasn't instant, you know what I mean? I think that a lot of people loved the sound that they heard, but there was, that's, I think, part of why I've always drawn inspiration from her. It was, even though she was a young woman when she left us, it wasn't really an instant process at all. Like she started studying classical music as a teenager and was studying with a classical teacher singing soprano repertoire, which is something that I did as well. And then she was working in Chicago, like kind of as teenagers do. She was working at a record label and started exploring her voice and tried different sounds and was actually in a few different bands. And actually, I think that she really came into her own when she started writing her own songs. Mm -hmm. And of course, when she met her main collaborator, who was her husband. So it took a while, I think. And I think that with a really distinct artistic style um, and a musical style and a really distinctive sound, it can take a while. Like people think because it's such a um, remarkable range that she had and the imprint of that was so big and so singular that maybe it was it was fast but it wasn't I think she put a lot of work into it and even sort of stepped away from it at times you know Mm -hmm. stepped away from from the scene at times I from what I've I've always like read about her life she wasn't there were you know well she certainly had she had children and so it was a really kind of varied path yeah and that's, that's right. She kind of took some time out and was living in Florida when her kids were really small, just semi-retired and wanting to live a quieter life and then kind of came back into things. But also, as you were saying, like she, you know, that had experience as a background singer and in other bands and, you know, those connections. I didn't mean to uh, sell sell her work short, but um, uh, developing those connections came from all of this other work that she'd done, and her solo career was really the culmination of so many other things. Yeah, and, of like um, exploration, mm-hmm. and even of stepping away, I would think, and even of having children. I mean, the reason why Loving You came to be in part was that she was singing to Maya, and yeah. it's a big part of the story. Yeah. So I like that, actually. I like that better than, as a source of inspiration, I like that way better than stories. It moves me more deeply and it, like, gives me more to dig into than people who are kind of overnight or were, like, packaged into something that is really easily marketed. I, I can relate a lot more to the idea of having these different experiences and, like, drawing them together. And also the cultivation of her sound, the development of her sound coming with that that operatic background you know classical training she thought for a while that she was going to be an opera singer when she was really young and she's not famous for recording opera music but you can hear the technical proficiency in the way that she sings and you know even being somebody who's famous for this clear really uh crisp whistle tone those kinds of things the control that she had all of that, those years and years of development, you know, you, you can you can hear how the work came in. Yeah, pretty incredible and impressive. Do you find that opera background uh, in any way attractive? Does that have any impact on 
your work. Yeah, I'm in yeah. opera singer yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. So I thought that was an interesting comparison, having heard you sing, that it's the ability to sing classical music, to sing opera, but then also she made incredible pop music as well mm-hmm. and was also heavily influenced by soul and R&B and... And rock. Yeah, yeah. And that fusion of all of those influences. I hear that in your work as mm-hmm. well. Um, so did, was that part of the, the inspiration too? Massively so, yeah. yeah. I think that I've found my way in a lot of the things that I uh, I see how those those experiences inform my whole sense of what's possible for myself in my career and how I'm shaping it to be the way that I it like if I if it doesn't feel good at a gut level that's the main indicator for me I'm going based off of my genuine appetite for music and then around that I shape the like the commercial side and I I am always like passionate about building my you know my business so that I can reach more and more audiences but I I just keep it true to my roots which some you know started with studying classical piano started with being fascinated with the stories of opera and discovering that I had this facility with my voice but also like growing up in a Jamaican household with Jamaican parents and hearing dub and soca and ska and definitely reggae and like having my uncles, all my dad's best friends who were avid record collectors and love soul music and reggae and the whole like range of black music that I grew up in and black culture. I just am w- not willing to really deny any of any parts of me. So I bring it all into my music. And sometimes there's a project like the one that you saw, the Ricky Ian Gordon piece, Autumn Valentine, that definitely slants strongly into classical music and could be sung by someone who just lives there. But I do think that the fact that I, the music I write is much more, you know, soul music, it gives me a sort of freedom in characterizing anything that I do that makes it uniquely mine. And I think that that's what made her voice so enduring and so powerful is that she really created the sound out of her natural resources. It's not even, I don't even know if it's so much about the training. I mean, the training gives you access to your voice in a certain really direct way. And it's, it's wonderful. I think that it has so much to do with her spirit though. I feel like it was always her spirit that was singing through the whistle tone. Mm -hmm. It was her spirit, the strength of her spirit that was, you know, makes those songs classics. Yeah. And also, training only gets you so far, and with someone mm-hmm. like Minnie Riperton, there's this innate, undeniable talent mm-hmm. that's so enormous, and watching videos of her singing, it's like this effortless, I mean, she made it look effortless, mm-hmm. just like joyful noise that just came out of her. And yeah, in that respect, it just feels like something that's so undeniably her and a million other people could have had the same training and experiences that she had and would not have been able to create those sounds. It was it was really unique to her. Also, just in terms of collaboration, I think I'm just thinking of like with Stevie Wonder on Creeping, the way that their voices complemented each other. Mm-hmm. I think she had a unique ability as well to really be able to blend seamlessly with other people's voices, with other people's sounds. I totally agree. And yeah, uh, that's that's another 
just insane talent that it's it's not just about always having this vision that's only hers and not incorporating anything from anybody else but really taking the best pieces from other people as well Mm -hmm. and um, combining them into this greater cohesive whole one of the things i love about her songs like even the songs that are just love songs of hers. For example, there's a song every time he comes around and it's a kind of like funky, slinky, sensual song about, you know, this obsessive desire for someone who's no good for you. And she just has this like beautiful way of making you be able to visualize this lover, even though it's not even a duet, like you never hear his voice, but he's so present in the way that she's telling the story in the song. And so... I think you can always envision her lover on the other side of anything she's singing. And then when she's singing with Stevie, and I think Stevie Wonder has that same quality. I don't, I think that it was just a part of the sincerity and the, just that inner sense of rebellion in their music that makes it so irresistible. Like the whole Wonderland, Charles Stepney crew, they just were really innovative. And so the way that they tell their stories, whether they're in a duet or they're separate, it's very, it's very visceral, even though it's not like, as you said, it's not ever forced or contrived. And um, so I just, I, I always found those duets really compelling. And my mom is a huge Stevie Wonder fan to this day. And uh, so the fact that she, even that she was singing with Stevie Wonder is like a dream of mine as well. <laughs> yeah, that's, I, I always like the duets and she has another duet. I mean, she has such a range of music. I think also the way that her voice sits in a in the texture of other voices in Rotary Connection, like the harmonies and the sort of ensemble layers that they would put in the whole instrumental texture was always extraordinary to me too. It never, I guess it ha- that also has a sort of theatrical element to it, like a chorus, but it's mm-hmm. somehow so funky. <laughs> and I just, I like that tension. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think that that's the, there's like different layers that it's the musicianship, the arrangements, but also the way that voices blend together. And then also the storytelling. Mm-hmm. And with both Minnie Ripperton and Stevie Wonder, I think any of their songs, it's this absolute magic to me that this three minute pop song can tell a story that's so intense and rich and Mm. has this huge emotional life and you really understand the story of what they're telling and the the emotion that they're trying to convey. And it's also so personal. And the stuff that they talked about was drawn from their own lives or from the world around them. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, that that is a really, again, a unique ability that I don't think, I, I don't think that it's something that's universal for all songwriters. It's something. Well, I think know. also, you know, the music of our time more people are more reluctant to really speak about community and to speak about speak from the perspective of collective a collective action. Everybody is willing to, you know, make songs about empowerment or self care or things like that, but it's more in the sense of, uh, you know, this is what I do and. It's more about kind of confessing their feelings about things. It's not about a we as much as, you know, Stevie Wonder writing a song like Visions. And, you know, 
those those are songs about that really speak to collective action and a sort of identifying with others in a different way. I guess it, it's a lot about the political times, you know, this during the, uh, the like period post civil rights movement during the feminist movement and the black power movement and the free love movement those those uh sensibilities were just different i'd say and i it moves me like i think the con that's why i do like to dig into that music because i think the contrast just keeps me a little bit fresher in what i'm writing and it challenges like my tendencies being a contemporary person so i'm always accessing that it just feel i think also you know even the way that we make music we can record it in different sessions with everyone in different places and it has been that way for a while but i think i've always been drawn to you know and i come from the world of live performance so i do like the sense of interaction inside of a band and dialogue inside of a band and like the sort of atmosphere that it gives to the music so yes to those type of duets that are really intense and intimate and also to a sort of intimacy inside of the uh, instrumental relationships in the band. Those are the things that like I always imbue my work with, especially my new album that I'm putting out next year in 2020 or this year, depending on when you're listening to this, <laughs> you know, um, but it's my music for 2020 and it, and those were all sort of super strong influences and and really the way that I wanted people to feel when they're listening to what I'm writing. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, the stuff that you were saying about Stevie Wonder, that incorporating politics into his music and delivering a message, saying something with the music that he was writing and still making songs that were perfect, beautiful, melodic just, you know, ha having all of the elements that you would want from just a, a or song. Or funky and danceable yeah, yeah. and like, yeah. Um, and that it's like, you know, you can listen to some of those songs at a party and just have them on the background. And if you're not focusing on the meaning, it's people having a couple of drinks and it is like something that people can dance to. But it also is, you know, a commentary on... Uh, the, the world that he lived in and, I mean, the world that we continue to live in now. And there was a lot of stuff about Minnie Riperton's uh, music as well, especially the stuff that was more personal about her own life, about the things that she was going through, the music that she wrote um, towards the end of her life, that it was like this just really intensely personal, painful stuff that she drew on to make this incredible music. And she just, you know, worked until the very end of her life, really strove to continue creating until she couldn't anymore. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, I think that all comes through in the music. Yes, they're just two examples of definitional examples of, of genius in music for the stories that they that they tell for the depth and the range of the stories that they tell. And I, I think as we think about what it means to be feminist today, Minnie Riperton is a huge inspiration for me as, you know, someone who made music from girlhood into womanhood and what being able to hear Minnie Riperton's recordings, you know, from her earliest 20s into the stage where she started to become a mother and, and was a mother and is writing through that and to sort of be privy to to the whole evolution of that 
makes me, you know, it, it's, I think that we, you know, we're really exposed these days to a lot of people's realities and, you know, through social marketing and everything, their day to day, but it doesn't necessarily hit the deeper notes that really the artistic process over time can achieve. And I think for both of them, that's what I've always loved. I mean, even Stevie Wonder's recordings with his first wife, Sarita, moved me very deeply. And the fact that they all worked together moved me deeply as well. I mean, Minnie Riperton's time singing background vocals and just all the sort of overlaps and collaborations inside of songs, the more you dig into them is gorgeous. And it's like a constant source of inspiration. And whereas the pace of life for me can be overwhelming and uh, I live in New York and I spend a lot of time here and even just I'd say for any recording artist the pace of life can be overwhelming to see the fruits of developing really deep and continuous artistic relationships over time makes me want to open up more and you know constantly connect with new artists and and invest the time into those work sessions or just going in the studio just to play and explore. And that's a really big part of my week every week. I'm always at um, hearing my colleagues. I'm always going to shows. I'm always staying for sessions. I'm always going into the studio and writing. And it's just, I think that they kind of influenced my process, really. She, mm-hmm. I feel like her music not just the resultant songs, but the way that she pursued her music has totally colored my process. Yeah. And it's that kind of dual purpose for interacting with other artists in your field that it's possibilities for collaboration and inspiration. And And trust. Right. I think like, because I love one of the best things about, like I, I, I said that perhaps social media sometimes has limits about how deeply you can really see into people's into see people's existence and their character and their experience the one like one of the things i love though on the other side of that is youtube i love to go down a youtube a musical like youtube wormhole and watch live videos that has been so awesome i mean i love having access to youtube and watching how songs are experienced from live performances that I only could wish that I could have been at and being able to watch one show in uh, Stockholm and another one in Woodstock and see the difference between the audience and the set and how the native tongue of the audience affects like what they understand or how that what they respond to that's been a really big tool for me and so I always watch her shows I've always watched her live shows even yeah I mean even this week I've watched some of that footage from the from the early 70s of her with rotary connection and it's that's hugely inspiring to see how how they executed this music live um and i've i talk a lot about kind of the pre and post internet eras on this show um and that is one of the greatest benefits of the internet to me totally. is this, I guess, democratization of access where instead of only having a, a select 
group of people who would be able to, who had control over recordings and performances and would give out access to them whenever they saw fit. All of this stuff is online now and you can really just, as you said, go down a wormhole, pick, <laughs> pick an artist that you want uh, to, to learn more about and to study and live with a little and it's all there. And um, something I was watching the other day, uh, something that fascinates me too is anytime which you sometimes can't find. There's these wonderful, whoever you are out there who find these rare videos, I always love them, no matter what language they're in. I was watching Tina Turner rehearsing. Oh, God. And this is probably in around the same time that we're talking about in the 70s. And it was just like, it's just, a, there's some footage. If you go on YouTube, you could probably search it and find it. And she's just dancing for going over the same little spot in the routine over and over again. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, when you're hustling as an artist and you're quite asking yourself, you know, where's this process leading? It's so wonderful to be able to peer into the past like that and see mm -hmm. someone who's so impeccable and who's the resultant product you always get to see the beautiful stagecraft and like mastery and to get to see how the how it all came together and how much how many hours of rehearsal went into it which I totally identify with because I'm, I'm that's just the way that I'm built is I'm I'm a real I guess you could say like a workhorse I I, uh, I do put a lot of time into to my music I always have since I was telling you that I was you know six seven and eight and going through my parents crates of vinyls and that was a, a very slow and delicious process for me too that was so much just escapism I would just do that for hours you know finish that homework and get go into my own space and my own world and zone into these into these songs hmm. so but, you know, then you become an adult. You don't have that time. You have the strictures of multitasking or whatever we call it, like just being busy and, sort of, you know, being, I don't like that adulting thing. I just feel like it's, I'll, I'll skip that. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, you, handling what you have to do, you can't all the time do that. But I, when I see other people who I admire doing it, it gives me like more license to, <laughs> to uh, be extravagant with my, with my music. So I like it a lot. Yeah. And that's, an, that's another good point is it's not just about being able to access these like finished performances, yeah. you know, uh, seeing what, what the, uh, the final product is being able to access the process itself. And, uh, you know, it, it's not always the case with everyone that they're willing to, to grant that access, but, um, the right. people who do just even little glimpses of, seeing the dedication and the work that goes into creating these performances that look totally effortless when they're done. Right. Um, but, you know, knowing the, I mean, it makes me think of like Homecoming, um, the Beyonce right, documentary right. where it's like, again, she's somebody who just makes it seem like she just wandered out on stage and just was like, boom, this is, you know, ready to go. And she's so, everything is so flawless and seeing behind the scenes, all of the development, everything that she went through, you know, mm -hmm. coming off of just having given birth to twins. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, it gives you this broader insight into uh, uh, someone else's creative process and can, can kind of help you to understand how your own creative process can function. Yeah, I think that's why Homecoming was very relatable, even though almost no one else can operate at that scale of like, uh, you know, the amount, the, the, just the, 
the density of the personnel and the supports and the financing that, that went into that and also the beautiful ideas and vision, you know, the, those parts of homecoming are, are so extraordinary. But there's always, no matter how extraordinary the circumstances, a really personal, relatable question that artists ask themselves. And it's just, you know, am I doing this? Is it, I'm doing this right? Am I mm-hmm. saying, is what I'm saying, did somebody else want to hear this? What does it mean? How do I pursue this? How am I going to pursue this? You know, what is my relationship to this work? How long am I going to stay with this? Is this finished yet? Is this finished for the world? I mean, the song that is likely the title song of my album, uh, which is Zora's Moon, I had that song in mind for a year, Mm. meaning I had the lyrics and I just couldn't. I recorded to myself in studio several different melodies and I just, it took me almost a year to find the one that is the right one that belonged to the words. Hmm. And I, I met, I set, wrote a lot of other songs while I was writing that, that one song. But once I finished it, it became obvious to me that it is the title track. It's the, it's a central and maybe I'm not at the ultimate part of the journey, but it's one of the most central musical ideas I made during those two years mm. of working on this album. It just happened to unfold in a very slow way. Uh, it had a different incubation period than all the other songs. Some of the other songs, and mostly I write my songs pretty in a short... If I were going to generalize about myself, I write them pretty quickly. I relate very well to the story of how Minnie Riperton wrote Loving You. She was humming a melody and her husband just overheard it. And he was a frequent co-writing partner with her. And he started recording it and, and playing around with it on the guitar and wrote it down and took just, I think, the la, 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 la. I think that was the first part that they got and then they built around it. Yeah. That's kind of, actually, I relate a lot to that. That's kind of how I usually have my songs come to mind and that's how they are born. But this one had an extraordinary birth process. And I think that's the beauty of like documentary filmmaking or music journalism or a podcast like this is that there, no matter how extraordinary, unexpected the perception of an artist is, the questions at the center are very human, relatable, and very like essential questions about a person's voice and how are they going to assert that in the world uh, what are they going to follow through with and pursue and like take to culmination so i think now having just recorded these tracks it's taught me a lot about myself and i it even though i've stayed in new york i recorded the whole album in new york i feel like i've traveled so far mm. and i bet that if I were to imagine anything about Minnie Riperton, I would say that she probably felt like she'd traveled far in her life too. Even though I think that is the beautiful thing about being an artist is you go such long distances in your, in your mind, in your imagination. It can be a bit of a lonely sensation also because <laughs> it's hard to relate to what's going on in reality sometimes. But I, I can only say like that my work process and when I make a work recording composition or finish a show, 
I produced the show that you saw also I sang and I produced it. And that's also become a signature of my my music as I realize a lot of it I have to make myself because some of my political messages are not super commercial or whatever the reasons are. Or perhaps I'm impatient and I need it to come out when I need it to come out. I don't know. I mean, I don't have to really figure out why, but I just know I can tell you that some of it, I I think, you know, being a developing producer skills has helped me be a freer singer and artist. So that show I produced because I felt like singing songs of Dorothy Parker's poetry is essential to this climate as far as women's rights in every respect, like gender roles, reproductive rights, all of the issues that we're on the front lines fighting today that she wrote about satirically and so prophetically in the in the twenties, they're just as just as urgently a part of being a woman now. So I think yeah, it's 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 a quite a journey. So I've all that is to say that I think the more work that I do as an artist, I realize I have to, you mentioned, you know, homecoming and process. I have to find ways to create platforms for myself and yeah, just constantly growing. I think that was what struck me about homecoming and for a lot of people too. I think they'd see Beyonce as someone who sings and dances beautifully and, you know, dresses beautifully and enjoys a great life, which are all true things, but she's making so many decisions in the course of a day and she's Mm. running her production company and, you know, in charge of her family too. But, you know, just so much expansion in, in everything in that, the course of that whole like process, that's become something I relate to a lot. And, uh, even though Minnie Ripperton was much younger when she was recording, you know, she was like barely out of her teens. And I think when she started recording with the girl groups, she was like 16, 17, 18. You know, I'm a woman, so I'm past those those years, but I I really relate to the growth that she put herself under to to you know, to record the albums she did and mm-hmm. and even to become a songwriter. The whole the whole like range of things you have to do. Yeah. And I, I think for artists in general, control is always an issue. Yeah. Power is always an issue. But exactly. In, particularly for women. Um, and when you're talking about Beyonce, I think maybe part of it is that she doesn't really do interviews and people don't get much of a sense of her behind the scenes personality because she doesn't she doesn't give a lot. But there's also this perception that like like you said, that she's, you know, a talented singer, a talented dancer, but how much does she really do behind the scenes? And I think Homecoming was a direct answer to that, where it's like everything. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, seeing that in action is inspiring, but it also like, I mean, just speaking personally from doing this podcast, that one of the reasons that I wanted to do this is because being an actor means waiting around for other people to give you permission to do what to serve your purpose in life and um, having something under my own control, having a project that's like me doing everything. It's a one man show and I don't Mm -hmm. have to ask anybody else's permission for it is so gratifying. And I think, uh, yeah, when you have artists who take, you know, there's, there's always compromise. There's always in, especially in the music industry where there's so many moving parts, you, you know, it's, it's difficult to do everything on your own, but 
learning to negotiate, learning to take control where you can, and learning how to collaborate and cooperate with people in an effective way that means that you're not going to, that the compromises you make aren't going to be so painful that you feel like you're, you're, you know, you've completely lost the vision that you had for your, for your work. Well, I think vision is a very important word. And I think I'm sure you started the podcast because it's part, it became part of your vision because you are, you're an actor, but it, there's the actor part. And for me, it's like that too. The musician part fits into a larger vision of me as an artist. Mm -hmm. And it's not like the end limit of the artistry, you know, there's so much beyond the, the piece that makes music that, that relates to my vision for my life as a human, uh, as a, as an artist, just in the sort of essential sense, you know, although at the same time, I'd say music is probably the most, one of the most essential parts of me. It is, it's a part of me. And yeah, I think that I find that it enhances the music when I take on other things because I'm a storyteller. And so I have a more access to experiences, ways of relating to people, more range of stories to tell and, and, you know, new ways to tell them every night. Um, as I'm touring, no performance is like the one before, but part of it is because no day is like the one before, because maybe I'm producing a piece like Autumn Valentine, or maybe I'm in the studio the whole day. And that will all inform the story that I tell, even though the song is the same. And, um, you know, I think, yeah, it, you come to find once you have the ability, but the other thing is you do have to kind of, the other marker is time, you know, I mean, Beyonce did a lot of interviews when I was a teenager and now her body of work speaks for itself because over time she's accomplished all these works. Yeah. And, you know, you, so those things are, are kind of part of the journey. You have to live these experiences and create the body of work that sort of speaks for itself. And then you can add producer, you can add podcaster, you can add other facets to you once the like the body of work is is there and so for me that's part of why I love recording what I'm writing because I don't have to physically be there I love the, the experience of people hearing something in a Starbucks or on a playlist and feeling like I'm with them hmm. I think that's very poetic very sexy I love that um <laughs> as a person who performs who started, I always say, but I can say I started performing live, you know, that was my, I started on, started on stages as a musical theater. If I didn't cover that, I can say that now, like, you know, singing, <laughs> in, singing in church, singing in school, mm -hmm. you know, eighth grade musical, like so many American singers, you know, school plays and just singing in my community and, but live. And, um, so I just love that development of being a recording artist and, having my music like live its own life where I'm not, my body is not there. I'm doing something else. I think that's, I could curse. It's like mind blowing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's beautiful. It's a, it's a, um, yeah. A way that you know that the, the work that you produce affects people in ways that you can never know. And it's at magical. times that you never know. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's amazing. There's a mystery to it. Cause I don't know mm -hmm. who's listening where, and honestly there'll be people that I'll encounter and I, I think for sure they haven't heard my music or a girlfriend will be like, 
someone sent me a playlist and they're like, you have to hear this. And they're like, that's my girl. Like, I know that song. Like, you didn't have to send it. Like, I'm glad you sent it to me, but I know about her. Like, I have a friend who's a writer and she said that she's finishing her book and someone sent her my first project and said, oh, you know, this is super relaxing. It's going to get you in the zone. She's like, oh, that's my girl. I know that. So I love that. I think it, it adds like elements of mystery and, and discovery that I, that I really enjoy. But I also love, I love travel, which is a good thing for an actor or a musician and mm-hmm. any, any kind of artist as <laughs> yes. we have our like exhibits in different uh, locations and, and our, and our tours. I love touring. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, that's great. I, I feel uh, very satisfied. I think this was a wide ranging and comprehensive discussion. It was. It was very fun. <laughs> um, so if people who are listening to this want to find out how they can get the new album when it comes out, mm-hmm. find out what else you've got going on, what's the best way to do that? Well, you can find me every day on Instagram. Okay. And that's a big, that's a tall order, right? But yeah. it's, I'm, I'm on there every day. And uh, I share lots of live performance clips and studio clips and all those sort of juicy bits that we're talking about of the process and then everyone can find it on their favorite player in late spring of 2020 wonderful that's the first single perfect all right well thank you so much this was really fun thank you i i loved it yeah take care what a fantastic person right do yourself a favor and check out candace's work you won't be disappointed and now the moment we've all been waiting for recommendations firstly I think everyone knows by now that I am slightly obsessed with Amber Mark, right? Her voice is incredible, she makes music that I absolutely love, so what's not to like? She's just released a new single called Generous, and spoiler alert, I love it. Do I talk about her too much on this podcast? No, I do not. If anything, I don't talk about her enough. Go and listen to that song immediately, please. Nextly... The International Center of Photography has just opened in the massive new Essex Crossing development on the Lower East Side, and they are bringing their A-game to the opening. There's a show about the LES itself that includes photos from the late 1890s, which is incredible. There's a brilliant and beautiful exhibition of Tyler Mitchell's work called I Can Make You Feel Good. He saw the way that black people and black culture were excluded from the work of high-profile photographers like Terry Richardson and Ryan McGinley, and this show is a direct reaction to that. It's an attempt to recenter this kind of work around black subjects. The results are beautiful and really moving. It's a mix of photography and photographic installations, and it's really incredible. And there's still more. The big show that they've opened with is a huge exhibition of hip-hop photography. It is fucking brilliant and expansive and emotional, and I loved it so much. Anyone who loves hip-hop should check it out. And that's all she wrote, folks. As always, please follow me on social media at Spark Parade, and please rate and review the show wherever you stream or download. And most importantly, have a fantastic week. Until next time, bye. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. 
Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.